Welcome to the Women in North American Aquaculture podcast, where we talk to influential women about their experiences in research, entrepreneurship, innovation, and mentorship in the aquaculture industry. My name is Jean Codin, and I'm the digital editor of Aquaculture North America. I'm so happy to be bringing you another bonus episode to celebrate Women's History Month. It's going to be very different to what you've been used to with previous episodes. It was my first in-person session, so you'll be hearing lots of ambient noise. Normally, you want somewhere super quiet to record your podcast, but I have to say that I kind of welcomed the noise because it kind of gives you that picture of the post-pandemic world I think we're all longing for right now. Um, But I'm warning headphone listeners right now, there's a lot of wind, so you might want to turn down your volume for some of it. I apologize in advance. As a Canadian, I'm so sorry. Next time, I'm bringing a windsock, I promise. So for this episode, I sat down with Jeannie McKnight, who is the Executive Director of Northwest Aquaculture Alliance. She's also President and Chairman of the McKnight Group, her strategic communications and issues management firm. We met in person in San Diego during Aquaculture 2022, which was an industry event hosted by the World Aquaculture Society at the beginning of March. What was interesting about Jeannie is that her background is in English literature. I immediately identified with her because in that way, she too is coming from that English and journalism and communications background, and she's using that to serve the industry, specifically in America's Northwest. We talked about her 35 years of experience and using her skills to advocate for the aquaculture industry. For example, did you know that we can credit her as one of the people that brought public awareness to the benefits of omega-3s? Yeah, I know. She has a lot of useful tips for aquaculturists out there, so stay tuned. But first, I'd like to thank our program sponsor, Merck Animal Health. Together, we can ensure welfare and sustainability for aquatic species. Now, please enjoy the Women in North American Aquaculture podcast with Jeannie McKnight. Thank you for being here, first of all. And um, how I guess the first question should be, how's your conference going so far? It has been a fantastic conference. First of all, thank you, Jean, for interviewing me and allowing me this chance to be part of this great podcast series. I really appreciate Aquaculture North America for doing this. So. Yes, we're so excited about this new program that we're trying to launch this year. And I, we should me- mention to our listeners that we are um, interviewing in person, which is the first time for this podcast. And it's so nice to do, especially as we're um, trying to come out of the pandemic. It's nice to be in San Diego, escaping the cold weather for both of us. So um, that's why for our listeners, in case you're wondering what all the ambient noise will be, the little the wind and the birds and all of that. But yeah, it's so nice to be in the sun. So thank you so much for taking some time. It's perfect. And this conference is wonderful. I'm learning so much. There's always so much to learn and seeing old friends and making new friends. So it's just a great experience. So the main reason I wanted to talk to you and invite you to the podcast is really to take advantage of your communications expertise and your extensive experience in this aquaculture industry. Um, Because as a fellow English major, coming into the industry was definitely a learning curve. Did you find that as well? Well, I came into the industry kind of in a funny way. I did not come into aquaculture first. I came into the wild capture fishery business um, 
through a foundation called the West Coast Fisheries Development Foundation. I was recruited by a business professor at Lewis and Clark where I was teaching. So yes, it was a learning curve like you could not believe because our members were the industry from California, Oregon, and Washington. And I knew nothing. I knew nothing about fishing. All I knew is we ate it on Fridays. Right, right. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a steep learning curve, but by, by understanding a little bit about the market, which was really what I was doing in the, those days, I found it much easier to get into aquaculture. Yeah, again, going back to, you know, both of our, uh, I guess, background in English, the language was the, the main obstacle for me. So how did you find that? What was sort of your trick to really coming to speak that language? of the aquaculturists? What a great question. And that is a difficult question. But, um, you know, I think, uh, for one thing, when I was in high school, I had the privilege of learning Latin. So we had Latin in the school in Minnesota where I grew up. And so really understanding a lot of the scientific technical terms was fairly easy for me to understand. Um, but I also am, I have no pride. If I don't know something or understand something, I don't mind asking. And I have had the most wonderful mentors to work with and explain things to me as well. Mm -hmm. So yeah, again, harnessing your expertise in communications, I find that some of the common challenges in the aquaculture industry, um, especially with the producers that they face, is the communication gap, I would say, coming from maybe not just the consumers, but maybe also with government bodies and other groups. Um, from your experience over the years, I'm wondering, you know, what is what is the communication gap and how do we bridge that gap for consumers, for example? You know, I think I'd answer it a different way. I'm going to, the, the question for me isn't so much a communication gap, I think it's a credibility gap. And I think what has happened is that people have been frightened by the voices that don't want to see aquaculture happen and they've used fake science. So I think our gap really exists in making ourselves more credible as, as speakers to our different audiences. So I, I, we are working right now with our Northwest Aquaculture Alliance to create ways to reach decision makers in a way that is powerful and impactful and gives them a real understanding of where we're coming from. So I think people are stuck in the era thinking aquaculture is like it was 20 years ago. And you know, our joke is that this isn't your father's Oldsmobile. Aquaculture has changed and is constantly improving. It's going through you know, technology improvements and process improvements. And just there was a talk this morning by Neil Sims, and it was an incredible talk looking at how people thought one thing, you know, several years ago, and now look where we are. You know, it's an amazing change. So, but, but consumers don't know that. And even some of our, what I find is some of our legislators don't know that. And agency personnel, even who should know, don't know that. So we've got to really hit them with the truth and be transparent and really understand where their gaps of knowledge and understanding, you know, where those are coming from. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious what your thoughts were. Were you able to catch the keynote from yes. yesterday morning yes, with uh, Rosman Naylor? Uh, yeah. I, I, I was interested to know about your thoughts on her perspective of um, uh, her 20-year research, because she had her, um, basically her talk was basically a look back of her 20 years worth of her research 
from the perspective of um, as an economist uh, and on food food security and that stuff. Um, how did you find that? Did you agree with what she said about um, how aquaculture has changed within the 20 years? Let me f preface this by saying that um, I don't share the view of some people that she's an enemy. <laughs> but in the beginning, she was definitely an outspoken critic of aquaculture. And I think people had a listening for her that was a little bit closed. Um, so I, but my listening for her came out of reading a paper that she had written after she went to the Stanford, um, the food group that she's with now, the Center, food security, of food Center security. for food Security. Oh, okay. And so I was listening to her from that perspective. I'll have to say that I had wanted her to be a little more rah-rah and hopeful about where aquaculture is and has come in 20 years. And I didn't find that there. I think as a scientist, she was very factual. I applaud her for coming and speaking to us. I think that that took some courage on her part too. Um, so yeah, I learned a lot. I absolutely learned a lot listening to her. And I think now it's opened a door for me to want to reach out to her and get some more of her thoughts about, you know, where we could improve and where we need to improve. But, you know, let's face it. I mean, her message is we've got, we've got to feed the world and this is one way to do it. Mm -hmm. And we have a long way to go in terms of keep um, keeping those research activities alive and um, really finding those opportunities for progress and for sustainability. Right. Absolutely. And to answer all of those questions yeah. that we, we all want answers to. Right, absolutely. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about the work of um, National Aquaculture Association. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, not... Northwest Aquaculture Northwest Alliance. Northwest Aquaculture yeah. Alliance. Yeah. A lot of NAAs. Yeah, yeah I know, right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about um, the activities there and your role as executive director. Um, how, would you, how would you say what your role is as executive director of the association? Let me, first of all, it's a great question. And we do work closely with NAA, the National Aquaculture Association. <laughs> so it's easy to get a little confused sometimes. But we follow what they're really about. They're really our big umbrella organization, even though we're very independent. But so here's the thing. I am a I'm a coalition builder, and I can talk about that a little bit later on if you want to. But what my role as executive director is to find the people who are representing the various sectors in our industry, not just producers. We've got support industries that are members as well. We've got, you know, feed companies and bring them together so that we can work in a pre-competitive way about the common challenges and then be able to communicate to the relevant agencies and elected personnel. Consumers, not quite so much, but yes, consumers ultimately get this message trickled down to them. But our, our battle right now is to make sure that we have the social license to operate in the various states where our members exist and work. So where would you, what region are you overseeing and who are the suppliers that are most of interest for you? Well, we, now we represent um, Hawaii. We have members in Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and we also now have a member in Alaska. Okay, yeah, so it's, uh, it, it's exciting to see them come together at this common mission. And they're all coming from different places, with from you know open ocean aquaculture to seaweed mariculture, to fin fish, to shellfish. So we have them all, and then we have. I prefer maybe not to name the names of the companies, but we have the two biggest feed companies, and they are fantastic to work with because they are constantly, you know, working to improve their product and make it more sustainable. 
What's the main mission that you're um, hoping to collaborate with these members about right now? What is your um, what is the general biggest concern right now for that community? Well, I think what our mission, and we, we're having a retreat to really define it better, but our, our mission is to make the production of aquatic foods, sustainable aquatic foods, acceptable in all the regions, not just in our region, but throughout the United States, throughout North America. Um, so we like to change the word aquaculture and, and really reframe it as, as producing aquatic foods because ultimately this is what we're doing. Is we're, our members, whether they're you know, feed companies, net companies, uh, suppliers of, of camera equipment, or producers, are all engaged in this activity called aquatic foods production. And we need to let people understand that aquaculture is just nothing more than making food that's healthy but it's from the water. Whether it's the sea, whether it's marine, whether it's fresh water, whether it's recirculating aquaculture. And um, so that's, that's where we're going. It's, it's almost a, a shift in concept of how we discuss it and how we frame it. And we begin, in the beginning, when we discussed who we were, we said, you know, we're a coalition of you know, producers and suppliers. But that doesn't mean anything to, to the consumer. So we've gone through this little shift and nudged a little bit by some of our leaders and nudged a little bit by me, but we've embraced that as a mission, really, and a sustainable production of aquatic foods. Um, what is your approach with um, engaging with government bodies and kind of, it sounds like being sort of a middle mediator for the industry and for the government bodies that are regulating the industry. What is your approach with that? Well, first of all, what I want to say is that we are grateful to the government bodies that we work with in uh, at the federal level with NOAA, for sure, uh, Department of Ag, for sure. Um, you know, in Washington State, we've got some challenges with some of the agencies that are, are regulating aquaculture, particularly marine aquaculture. But our, our approach is to communicate and be credible and be transparent and understand where their concerns are coming from so that we can reach them and be able to you know, persuade them. So, for example, we've just released a report, which you might have seen, we had a press release about a NOAA study that came out. And this has, it's, been, it's reached everybody now in the agencies, the relevant agencies in Washington State, because it really debunks this fear that, that aquaculture, that some people have, that aquaculture is bad for the environment and harmful to endangered species, and harmful to the orcas, when nothing could be further from the truth. Um, have you gotten reactions from that since, from government bodies, in terms of feedback and helpful criticism, maybe? Nothing so far. I have not heard, although I've, I've been gone, so I don't know, uh, you know what, the, what the feedback has been, but I'm sure we would get some feedback, for sure. I'll tell you what, though, here we've gotten so many attaboys for the work that we did, because even if people aren't doing marine aquaculture, they know when we have a little victory like this. So to be able to tell it to the world has been great. Mm -hmm. I guess one small small win for one section of the sector yes. can be a big win for everyone else. Well, it is it's perfectly said because it, it's a win for aquaculture as a concept. I mean, I was just saying earlier, we we're talking about aquatic foods, but aquaculture as an overall concept, people don't have a clue sometimes what it is. And then if they have a clue, they have a bad view of it. But when a big federal agency comes in after a five-year study and says, or th 
almost five-year study, four-year study, and says, you know, that, that it's not harm, you know, it does not going to harm the environment, is that's a huge win. A big obstacle, I believe, for the sector has been, you know, debunking the myths of anti-farming uh, groups. What is the approach to that as from the perspective of aquaculturists? Is it, um, do we engage in that conversation or do we just um, get better at telling our own story? Another great question. You know, when I was thinking about this uh, a little bit, I thought about the um, one of the big lessons that we all learned long before you were born, probably. But it was how um, how not to answer a question for the media. And so this, I'm going to go around to answer your question. But it, <laughs> it was the early days of television when Richard Nixon was asked, President Richard Nixon was asked a question about um, some shady activities he's, he had engaged in, and on national television, sweating profusely. He shook his finger at the reporter and said, I am not a crook. Well, what? So my background is literature and psychology. So the, the, the mind doesn't understand the not a crook. All they can hear is, I am a crook, right? And he looked that way and he came across that way. So I think the, um, you know, the takeaway is that we have to be positive with our message. We have to tell the good story about the message, but frame it in such a way that really accents and accentuates the good. Mm-hmm. Um, so if there, if there is an aquacul- aquaculture company right now or, who are, or an executive that's listening that might be thinking about, you know, re-strategizing their marketing efforts and things like that, um, what's the first thing that you usually like to look at in terms of um, what their communication is right now? and the brand that they present to the world? What's the first thing that you usually look at? Well, first of all, I think anybody, I, I'll tell you that the executives that I come across in this industry are so savvy that I can't imagine that they would be wanting to listen to me about what to do and what not to do. But, uh, you know, I think the important thing is to, first of all, know who your markets are. And that might be starting with the consumer, going to the regulator, going to the distributor, whatever, the sections of that you have to be talking with. First of all, know that. Know what resonates with them. Tell the truth. Don't be afraid to get out there. One piece of advice I've given when we do media training is is that you have to make friends first with the media before you need them. So start building relationships if you, in fact, want to have a sort of media strategy that deals with, you know, talking to the press. So don't wait until it's too late. Don't wait till the crisis hits. Start now. And that's also true with reporters, whether it's a trade press or whether it's the business press, whether it's the food. Back in the days, we used to have actually food editors and food writers. But get to know them. Talk to them about who you are, what you produce. And be, you know, not necessarily pitching a story, but here's who we are. You know, the other thing, I, really early on in the industry, when um, before I was working in aquaculture, we were doing media training for some of the commercial fishing industry people. And they had tended to want to shy away. They're like, reporters calling, no comment, <laughs> you know. But learned over time, and with, with a lot of really good advice, say, from Gavin Gibbons from NFI, National Fisheries Institute, kind of people really saying, let's get out there. Let's tell our story. If we, if we have, you know, we're worried about answering certain questions, let's get out there anyway. You know, let's, because it's all about this whole concept of trust. Can people trust me as a spokesperson? 
at least you're in the conversation. You're in the conversation. Yeah. There's a great book by Stephen Covey's son, Stephen Covey Jr., called The Speed of Trust that I'm reading right now. And it really does, I think, speak to where we are as an industry, that, that if we put our people who can be trusted out front, then I think we as an industry can be more trusted as well. How long have you been in the industry and sort of what has been um, the lessons learned that you've had from aquaculture that you didn't expect um, studying, you know, thinking about yourself as a university student and, and an English literature major and things like that? What was um, I'm sure there have been quite a lot of unexpected turns being in the aquaculture industry. Absolutely. You mentioned that it was not something that you started out to do. Yeah, I actually started out as a journalist, a journalism undergraduate, and then I switched to English major. But I had written, I'd done a lot of daily journalism as well. And just because of life circumstances, I kept going to school. <laughs> I got my PhD. But, um, you know, I got into, I think it's really important to sort of frame this as how I got into aquaculture in the first place. So I had been the first uh, communications director for this organization called the West Coast Fisheries Development Foundation. And then I got recruited to go to work for the Alaska Seafood Marketing Institute. And along the way, my task there was to meet with seafood merchandisers and retailers in various markets and talk about Alaska seafood. And we had a great story to tell. Improvements needed as well in some of the ways that they handled the fish and that sort of thing back in the day, which is much totally changed now. Um, and so when I left to start my own business, I had this, this is back in the day, I had this Rolodex of all these valuable seafood buyers and merchandisers from various key supermarkets throughout the United States. So I got a call one day from a guy, a gentleman, who was a banker from Chile. And he asked me, he said he is having a very hard time with anybody helping share who the big decision makers were for the U.S. seafood industry. I mean, sorry, the supermarket industry. And would I meet up with him and give him some of the benefit of my expertise because somebody had given him my name. So we had lunch and I brought my big fat Rolodex with all my contacts and said, here, it's yours. Go ahead and call these people because, you know, what they wanted to do was find out what the U.S. Super, uh, U.S. consumer wanted. What did the housewife want? Why did they, what did they want in seafood? Because at this time, Chile was just getting started in their salmon farming. And so what they wanted to do was to say, how can we really survive and make it in the U.S. market? So fast forward a couple of years after that, I get another phone call from the same group saying, you have an, ad you have an advertising and PR firm. We want to put you into a beauty contest. Not me, but <laughs> contest to find out who we will hire as an agency in the U.S. Long story short, we got hired, and I found out years later it's because they said, the chairman of their board said, there's nobody could, the San Francisco agencies, the New York agencies could not match, match your firm for the passion for this industry. So we were hired in the early days of the salmon farming industry in Chile. So the big, you know, one of the big unexpected turns for me was that being willing to share for the good of all, again, it was the pre-competitive concept that these people were gonna be producing seafood anyway and they wanted to go into the US market. So why not help them understand what we were looking for? The big takeaway for them was that it was what the supermarket buyers told them was that consumers, moms don't wanna give their kids fish because there's bones in it. 
Moms don't want to give their cook fish at home because it stinks up the kitchen, right? So what in the early days the Chilean salmon industry did was start to think about creating a pin bone out, all ready to cook fillet, right? So the PBO fillet was born out of that conversation. And again, you know, who knew? And it just became extremely popular by the you know, early 90s, uh, mid 90s. They had pretty much started to dominate the market, fresh Atlantic salmon from Chile. Wow. Yeah. Do you remember when you fell in love with the industry and um, decided this was the industry that you're going to stick around for? Oh, I love that question. So actually, you know, the funny thing is that my the professor of business who pulled me away to go to work for the West Coast Fisheries Development Foundation said to me once in his kind of, you know, droll way, McKnight, if you go to work for the industry, and this was the wild fishing industry, you'll never regret it. And you know what? He was right. I fell in love with the industry working for the Fisheries Foundation when we were trying to build working waterfronts and promote underutilized species and help California, Oregon, and Washington fishermen be able to have markets for their products. That's when I fell in love with it. And the people were like, these are family businesses. You know, mostly the people in fishing and aquaculture are family businesses. Do you remember, was there a specific memory at all that like where it clicked for you that, oh, okay, this is what I'm doing? You know, it's funny because, yes, one of the things that clicked was being down here in San Diego, actually. Okay. And I, I worked at the time with a home economist, and we would come to various, like, um, marketplaces, and San Diego was one where we had members, and we would do, like, um, big barbecues of some of the products that our members were producing. And we had media, and we had celebrities, and I'm like, this is fantastic. What fun is being able to see these people enjoying this food that American fishermen have caught and that is going into the marketplace and helping other people really enjoy seafood. So that was one of the big turning points. was really, really early on. Yeah. It was before we had a farm-to-table concept, right? Yes. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Definitely before that. The other kind of really important thing that made me realize how much I love this industry was um, I was hired, our company was hired to put on the very first seafood and health conference and it was held in Seattle and it was bringing together scientists who were studying about omega-3s. This was back in 1985 when nobody knew what an omega-3 fatty acid now was. Now everybody, <laughs> yeah. everybody knows. Yeah, and it was such an incredible thing to see these researchers and dietitians and nutritionists come together and really talk about how beneficial it is. So, and years later, kind of fast forward to just, I think last year, a Seafood Nutrition Partnership uh, seminar one of the dietitians said that despite all this, today, 95% of America's children are omega-3 deficient. They're still not getting enough seafood in their diet. And you can't get it all from fish oil and you know, capsules. You've got to eat it in the diet. So we are, we are in an industry, and I love aquaculture because you can control the nutrition by what you feed the fish, right, or the shellfish. Um, but we are so lucky in that we're producing something that people need and that makes people healthy, you know, contributes to public health. Now, you've also had a lot of experience sitting on the executive level of a lot of companies. You also started your own business at one point. Um, so from that perspective as well, I really wanted to talk to you about your experience as a woman in that higher tier of the industry. Um, 
how many women in the bo- are in the boardrooms with you? Uh, has that changed over the years? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to just have a little chuckle here. But, you know, when I started, we there were not many women doing much except sales and marketing. I mean, really back in the early days when I was doing work, I was doing communications work. So marketing fell into like PR kind of stuff. That was a kind of a girl place to be, right? You know, um, but not because anybody was overtly sexist or didn't want to see women rise. It was just how things were. And we started an organization called Women's Fisheries Network. And the purpose was to empower women to, to reach into bigger roles in companies. And I have found, maybe I'm just a Pollyanna, but I have found so much encouragement from men in executive positions to get women into the boardroom, to get women into the higher executive positions, whether it's a COO, whether it's a CFO, um, whether it's a director of marketing. I have, I have, maybe I'm lucky I've found great mentors, but I have found that um, to, to almost to a person, they've been absolutely inclusive. You know, this is a great industry that way. They, and partly, you know, some of these companies, the family companies, they've got daughters. Their daughters, they want to come and get into the company as well. I mean, look at Kim Gordon from Slade Gordon Fish Company. You know, she's running the company now. So family, family-run companies empower their daughters. And I think that that culture has pervaded this whole industry. And yeah, we, our board is largely men. Um, you know, we work on diversifying. Uh, but I don't ever feel for a second that there's uh, any kind of a, a ceiling, a glass ceiling at all. I've never felt that way. But I've been lucky to have great mentors. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, do you find that it's changed over the years, though, in terms of um, the different kinds of jobs that you're seeing women in now? Absolutely. I, that's absolutely the case. And I think um, whether it's from an executive director position, a friend of mine uh, is the executive director of the Oregon Troll Commission, and uh, midwater trawlers, sorry. And, um, you know, I, I think that a lot of women have, are in the similar roles to mine, where we are naturally aggregators of, of people in power. Um, but I also think aquaculture as an industry has opened doors for women more than anything, you know, ever as far as an industry. Women are able to get into this industry in, in ways I have never seen before in the sort of commercial fishing sector. And I'm not putting them to blame, I'm just saying that it's. Uh, women in aquaculture is a real deal. It's a real thing. So um, I'm, I heard that you've been working on a new prog- project. It's a scholarship program. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I'd be delighted to. Thank you for asking. Yes, um, after we lost our board member, Kurt Grinnell, who was really a very visionary guy and a great spokesperson for aquaculture and sustainable seafood, we tried to figure out how to honor him. And the best way to honor him, several of us met and thought, that Kurt wanted to, he was focused on youth and education. So we set up what is now known as the Kurt Grinnell Aquaculture Scholarship Foundation, which has now been approved by the IRS as a 501c3 charitable foundation, and we are soliciting donations. The beneficiaries will be any youth, or they don't even have to be young, any people <laughs> um, who are either um, an enrolled member of a U.S. recognized, federally recognized tribe, or someone from the Canada First Nations any First Nations band who wants to study aquaculture, aquaculture technology at a trade school, two-year or four-year college or university graduate program. So what inspired you to pay tribute to Kurt in a scholarship format? Well, Kurt was one of a kind and he taught us all. He was a member of the Jamestown Scalalum tribe and uh, the great grandson of one of the people who signed the Point No Point Treaty 
And he would speak so eloquently about looking after future generations. And one, he was also very, very dedicated to youth. And one way we thought Kurt would live on would be through people honoring him by studying what was his passion, which was using aquaculture as a way to feed both his tribal people and also to sell the product to fund tribal programs. So we felt that that would be the best way. And his family agreed. And so the Scholarship Foundation was born. Where can people find um, the information to the scholarship and potentially apply? Okay, they, they can go to the um, Kurt Grinnell Scholarship Foundation.org and there is a link to an application in that program. And we are still working on a number of things that have to do with the scholarship, but there's a way to contribute as well. There's a, there's a donate now button, and we'd love to have people honor him by donating in his name. Okay, we'll have all the links on and all the available resources on our website as well so that it's easier to find to pe with four people. So if you guys want to check that out, we'll have it available where you found our podcast episode. Um, we're coming to the end here. Um, I was wondering if there were was anything that you yourself wanted to talk about that I wasn't able to ask you. I, I think that the, the way to really look at it and the way I'd like to kind of wrap things up is what a phenomenal opportunity we all have working together in this industry that we now know that we have the capacity to feed the world with a really nutritious, affordable protein that the world needs. So I feel that we're at a really great time right now in our history with great leaders in place in companies. Amazing innovation going on that is happening at such a rapid pace. So I feel really privileged to be part of this this industry and it's it's great and anytime you know that there's an opportunity to mentor young women I'd be happy to do that as well and um, but I feel like this is this is a great time it's our listeners might take you up on that so <laughs> it's a big as 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 one of the Chilean women said she was a a big quality control person for one of the big 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 salmon farming companies but um I had the opportunity to bring some opinion leaders down to Chile in 2012, and what she said was, and I use this all the time, this is a big moment in aquaculture. This is our big moment, we, and we, it is ours to move forward as a, you know, in a, in a unified front in a way. So. And I want to say that I personally am so grateful for the trade press, like Aquaculture North America, this is a plug for the publications, <laughs> but without our our educated trade press, we would not be able to get the story told. We would not. And it's, it's a huge, huge distribution channel of, of information. And so I, I'm fortunate, uh, I feel very fortunate that we are able to work with the purveyors of good, truthful information. So, um... I didn't pay her to say that, folks. <laughs> but um, we, I, we certainly, I, I certainly, um, I'm new to the aquaculture industry, so I certainly strive to continue to learn, and I, I really want to be a sponge for the experts in the industry, the tried and true, who have gained the wisdom to um, tell our story in the right way and tell their story in the correct, factual, you know, fair, balanced way. Um, so... Our, uh, I like to end the podcast with some last thoughts, so I have three questions for you. Um, what is the best advice you've ever received? Follow your passion, follow your heart. The money will follow. Hmm. What is 
a piece of advice you wish you would give to your younger self? I think that to my younger self, what I would say is don't follow the track you think you're supposed to follow as a woman, but really get to know where your true heart lies and take that track. Really listening to your own center. Yes. Yeah, yeah that's definitely I important. I loved teaching. I taught phenomenal classes at Lewis and Clark College. I loved my students. I was only about two or three years older than them. So we were more like peers. I absolutely loved it, but what I found was that I liked the people and the conversations with the people in the business department better. You know, so it just was, I didn't really know. You know, it was the track that was expected for women to follow. And I started following it, but I had the chance to pivot because of my relationship, uh, professional relationship with one of the business professors who's recruited me. And, you know, I, I never looked back. It was great. I think it's still good advice today. I mean, it's always a battle between, you know, outside expectations versus, you know, your own center and your own passion. Yeah, absolutely. Favorite fish pun or joke? My favorite fish pun is a joke and then there is a pun that comes after it and the joke is where do little fishies go when they get sick who do they see oh where do they when they get sick yes. who do they oh who do they go to like a fish doctor a sturgeon okay yes obviously of course <laughs> that's and, good and that uh, why i love that so much is the number of years ago we ran a bunch of us who were in various seafood organizations contributed to the first promotional program um to generically promote seafood and the mascot for that program was the sturgeon general okay <laughs> Not only a medical professional, but also an officer, a military officer. <laughs> Very good. You know, and I, one of the questions that you didn't ask, and I know we are almost out of time, but no, if you no. find room for this, yes. you had asked my, who my mentors were, and I really want yes. to give acknowledgement to this. Yes. So I have two that I'd like to mention. One is Wally Stevens former COO of Slade Gordon, executive director, and then CEO of the Global Aquaculture Alliance, now Global Seafood Alliance. And Wally taught me, I've, I've known him now for probably 30 years in various business capacities, but we were involved once with a, a trade dispute with some shrimp, imported shrimp, shrimp importers versus the U.S. shrimp fleet. And Wally always taught me that you have to carry an olive branch before you carry the big stick. And he was probably the consummate diplomat. And I, I always try to channel my inner Wally Stevens when I'm thinking about how we're going to approach, uh, you know, one of the aquaculture haters and think about what would Wally do, you know, the Wally branch approach. WWWD. <laughs> Exactly. And the other person um, I really want to mention who taught me so much in the short time I knew him, just a couple of years, um, I recruited him to our board. That was Kurt Grinnell, who passed away a year ago almost, um, tragically. And he really taught me the value of thinking about not just planning for today, but his own culture of planning seven generations ahead and thinking about what we're doing today is, is planting the seed for those generations to come. And I think about that when you ask me the mentoring questions for young, young people, young women, is that's another way to plant the seed for seven generations ahead, is to use our expertise you know, to, to mentor and help people find what they're really wanting to do in their lives as well. 
and not even seven generations, but you've seen fruits from the beginning of your own career. Um, Absolutely. It can happen just yeah. as quickly as that as well. Absolutely it can. Uh, you know, and, and again, thinking about, you know, especially, you know, somebody like Wally Stevens, who you, you would just watch him in action and see how revered he is because of his decency and his, you know, and his approach to solving problems. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's a nice spot to end. So thank you so much for being here, Jean. Jeannie. Jean. Both, I've called both things. So just, you know, Jeannie was the name that I grew up with. So that's the name that stuck with me. But some people call me Jean too, and it's a very good name, isn't it? It's a great name. It's a great name. It served us well, hasn't it? (laughs) It's so nice to have a fellow Jean or Jeannie to talk to. There's not many of us out there, but I'm glad to have met Jeannie McKnight in particular. I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode. I also hope the background noise wasn't too distracting for you. But also, what a nice treat to be talking to someone in person, wind and sirens and all. As always, our show notes with links, photos, and more extras can be found in our website, aquaculturenorthamerica.com women. We're also opening up for your own submissions of women's stories through our new Share Her Story campaign. At the top of our webpage, you'll see the header image that says Share Her Story, which will take you to our online form. Please check that out. Thank you to our program sponsor, Merck Animal Health. Together, we can ensure welfare and sustainability for aquatic species. And thanks to you for listening. <laughs>